de-scarifying revelation. That's what we should have called this series. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're in a new series. Uh, we're going to be specifically in the first five chapters of Revelation. But before we get into this series, one of our core identities as a church is uh, thoughtfully engaged. It's the second one here with the little cityscape. And what that identity means is that we want to be a people who see the action of God um, in all things, in the world around us, in the culture around us, and to engage that in a thoughtful way. There's two mistakes that, that the people of God, that the church often makes. One is to be thoughtlessly engaged. Right? This is just kind of shouting people down and thinking that somehow you're going to win the argument. Um, and, uh, or to be thoughtfully disengaged, to be, have high theology, have, be, be brainiacs on many things, but to never land that in the everyday of our lives in what's actually going on in the world. And from the beginning, uh, the man that you just saw, our founding pastor, <coughs> um, felt called to make a core value, especially given where our church is, to make thoughtfully engaged a core value. Why am I saying all that? I'm saying all that because uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned this week, and that has led to all kinds of cultural conversation, right? And look, it would take, uh, it would take at least a sermon, if not an entire discipleship lab or course or whatever, to kind of wade through all of that. But to not say anything as a church that talks about stuff, just felt to me like, like a myth. Um, and so I have watched other pastors attempt to respond to this in the wonderful, magical world of social media and just been raked over the coals for anything that they say. Um, and so if you'll allow me to take a risk, um, I think that Roe v. Wade being overturned and most likely that leading to uh, less deaths in the womb is a good thing, is a thing that we as Christians should celebrate, that the image of God exists on, on a fetus, and that that's something that scriptures affirm, and that God is the only one who gives life and can take life. I also think that we're Christians, and so we should really care about those who feel like they're immediately in danger by this. Um, we should at least redouble our eff efforts to take care of mothers um, with unexpected pregnancies. The scriptures specifically say, I think of the letter of James that we preached through a while ago, that specifically says that the people of God are to be exceptionally engaged in taking care of widows and orphans in their affliction, like when they're in need. And so for the church to just shout at this and then to back away from the many issues that this creates would just be such, such a massive failure and hypocrisy on our part. Um, this is a time to stand back and to, and to listen, and to listen for understanding's sake to those who maybe you just don't have a category for who see this very differently, right? Like this is not a time for us to do a, a political touchdown dance or something. Um, this is where we have to look. We just did a whole series in Philippians where one of the main points of that were was, was this concept that the Apostle Paul gets at that our engagement with the world, that our politics, he literally uses an ancient Greek word that talks of politics, that our politics have to look and feel different because we're people sourced in the gospel, that we believe that what Jesus says matters most and that Jesus shows us what a posture towards the world 
looks like. And so, yes, let's speak truth, but let's be a people who do that from a place of love and grace. Because in a church like ours, there are people coming from all kinds of experiences with an issue like this. Inevitably, in a community like this, there are, there are those who have chosen to have an abortion, right? And I don't want those people to feel like you have done the unpardonable sin here and you don't belong here, right? Like, that's something to be cared for and moved toward um, as the people of God, not something to be shunned. And so with all of the pastoral love and care that I can, that I can offer, um, I can say that, yes, as Christians, we need to stand up and say um, that in an ultimate sense, there is good here. There is something worth rejoicing in um, at a national level. At the same time, my deep concern is that the posture that we will take and that we will be associated with in this will be anything but Christian, right? We'll look far more like the partisan political moment that we are living in than like a distinctly Christ-like response to it. And I hope that somehow, in some way, our little teeny tiny community here in central New Jersey can do this a little bit differently, that we can have these conversations differently, that we can talk about it and be postured toward it differently. Um, so that's, that's what I've got for me now. Uh, if you're on our mailing list, I will send out some things that I've personally found helpful in just processing kind of the what now of this decision and what this means for us as the people of God. But I felt like as someone who's gotten up here and commented on many things uh, over the years, I don't want to turn this into, right, I've always been leery of like commenting on everything um, because then it turns into like whatever, the Colbert show or something where I feel like I just have to do a, a bit, right, um, an opening monologue to Scott's message. But this is so significant uh, that I felt like it'd be amiss um, not to say something. And so, um, so yeah, let's keep talking about this. Let's keep engaging this. Um, and uh, my wife and I have had many conversations <laughs> about this over the course of this week, and I would encourage you um, to do that because, yes, there's different perspectives, right? I'm a, I'm a man, um, and so I like that's worth acknowledging. Um, as we move through in all manner of conversations. And so I felt like I wanted to say that. If you'll allow me to now take a hard left turn into a brand new sermon series. Uh, we are in the book of Revelation. My job today is to introduce this very, uh, you've heard it already. Rachel said it's a lot. Um, Jalen said it's scary. And so um, I'm hoping that those aren't the two only things that you leave here understanding about the book of Revelation, because I actually think that Revelation is amazing, is wonderful, is one of the most life-changing um, books in the entire Bible. In fact, uh, I just read this week, Eugene Peterson, like super famous pastor and writer, he wrote the message, is he said, if I could take one book with me, if you only gave me one book of the Bible, I'd take Revelation because of what it's actually meant to do, its purpose. And that's really what I want to talk about in these first eight verses. What is the purpose of Revelation? And so, um, so let's get into it here. It opens with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation, there's your word. It's not revelations, not plural, just one revelation. The word here is literally a Greek word. Apocalypto um, is, is the original word. And it means the taking off of a veil, something revealed. And this says that what we're about to read is the taking off of the veil of Jesus Christ, 
which God gave him, that's Jesus, God gave Jesus to show his, that's Jesus's, we get into a lot of uh, sort of who are these things referring to, to his servants, the things that must soon take place. Apocalyptic uh, is, the, is the genre term that's gotten uh, from, from that Greek word, apocalypso, unveiling. And it's a familiar one. It's a familiar one to biblical readers because there's several places in the Old Testament that, that pick up on this genre. And there's actually, you might not realize this, several places in the New Testament that pick up on this genre. Jesus himself gives these little mini apocalypses in his various teachings. And what the apocalyptic genre is meant to be, this is where the scary comes in, is it's meant to be this, this taking off the veil of our experience of the mundane every day to see behind that veil into the spiritual realities that stand behind our experience of the world, such as it is. It's an, it's an unmasking of reality. I had a, a professor in seminary who would say that many people think of something like apocalyptic as an escape from reality, sort of like a Marvel movie or like, you know, whatever, sci-fi or something. It's an escape from reality. But what apocalyptic actually is biblically, it's, it's really, in, you could think of it as an escape to reality or an escape to a different aspect of reality. It's an unmasking of the, the world as we experience it, which we mostly experience as the sum total of, of what's going on in our lives, of, right, of physical matter. But there's this whole other reality that stands behind spiritual reality that apocalyptic unmasks. Thus, what it uses to unmask that are very vivid images and symbols, things that awaken us from the everyday into the urgency, the enormity, the, the cosmic significance of that spiritual reality. What it's not doing is saying, right, as, as we go through this, uh, if we were to go through the whole book, which we're not going to do in this series, and I'll explain why uh, I chose not to do that, but if you go through the whole book, you're going to encounter dragons and giant white horses that fill a continent and Jesus with the, a sword coming out of his mouth and a beast that rises from the ocean and swipes away entire nations. What these are not meant to do is to be literal depictions of these ultimate realities that it's pointing to, but it's meant to somehow stir our imagination so that we can understand the enormity, the significance, the urgency of those realities. You tracking with that? So it's not literal in the sense of if you could see these spiritual realities, you would literally see. For instance, one of the things that we'll see is that Jesus is depicted as a lamb appearing as one slain. Literally a lamb with its throat cut. Now does that mean that if we were to strip back reality and see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, there would be a little lamb with its throat cut and we would go, oh, there's Jesus. I would venture to say no, <laughs> because Jesus was a human being that when he raised in his resurrection, he was a person. He was a person with a real person body in a resurrected body who now sits at the right hand. But by calling him a lamb 
appearing as one slain, what that's saying is that the most significant thing that we need to understand about the one who now sits at the right hand of the throne of God is the work that he's done in and through his sacrificial death, depicted throughout the scriptures as him standing in for the sacrificial lamb, for the Passover lamb, all of these images. But just saying, oh, and Jesus was there. So I saw the throne room, so you got God, you got Jesus just there to the right, and then you have all these things that are opposing it down on earth. No, that doesn't evoke the enormity, the significance, the urgency of these realities. That's what apocalyptic is meant to do. So the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Why of Jesus Christ? Well, probably this of there is working in two ways. It's, it's, it's his, he owns it, He's, he's the one who, who is giving this to the servant, but it's also of him. It's, it's primarily, as we'll see even in these opening eight verses, it's primarily about him. It's an unveiling and unmasking. If you want to understand ultimate reality, the first and foremost and, and primary thing that you have to contend with is Jesus himself. And the unmasking, the unveiling is primarily an unmasking and unveiling of, of Jesus but it's given to him by the Father. There's always this relationship, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll see the Holy Spirit show up a little bit later in this passage. But you have all of the Godhead active in what's being unveiled to us here. So God gives it to Jesus to show Jesus' servants. And then this, the things that must soon take place. Now that, this is where the interpretation of Revelation can get a little bit funky, is we think that everything that's talked about here is primarily about stuff that's going to happen. And then this is where the church, and this is really, by the way, I don't know if people realize this, this is like a very specifically American thing that's happened to Revelation. It's really only in the last 100, 150 years that people have taken Revelation and made it into like this, like, like Da Vinci Code, like what, what do all the symbols mean? And if we can figure it out, we'll figure out that Putin, right, like is the Antichrist, and Ukraine is whatever, like... Um, it's no, very few people in the history of biblical interpretation have treated it that way. There's just something distinctly American about we just love a good conspiracy and we love our little numerology and all this wacky stuff that we do with it. Um, but it sounds like here that that's validated because all of these things are about to take place. What will soon take place is biblical language is something that has already started now, but that will find its ultimate conclusion in the future. Think of Jesus who says things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. The same word. The kingdom of God, if, if you've experienced miracles, if you've experienced these various things, Jesus says at one point in his teaching, then the kingdom of God is about to take place. And what he's saying there is, it's starting. It's happened. It's been initiated. It's finding its culmination, right? Like when Jesus is saying that, he's still alive. He hasn't done the work on the cross. He hasn't resurrected. And as we find out, even that's not the end of the kingdom coming close because we still await its ultimate fulfillment. That's what's being talked about here. We'll see that more as we go on if you don't believe me yet. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. This is interesting. It's like God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to the angel. The angel gives it to John. There's this depiction of it. It originates in the heart of God, and then it's sent along. This is this, these are visions. This is a word directly from the heart of God. Yes, handed along to actually show up 
2,000 years later in a little church in central New Jersey, but nonetheless originating in the throne room of God himself, handed along all the way until it's put into human stewardship in the hands of this one John. John, who's John? Um, scholars disagree. It could be John the gospel writer. It could be another guy called John the elder. Um, it's someone who is later in life, almost certainly, and has gotten himself into trouble, as we'll find out, for preaching the gospel and is now in exile on an island called Patmos. Um, the image here is a little different. We just went through a letter that Paul wrote from prison. The image that you should have here is a little bit different in that exile wasn't quite as extreme as what Paul was in. <laughs> this is more like, um, yeah, exile is, is like a strong word for us. This is, whoever this John is, was sent to this island because whatever like little governing authority locally just didn't want him around anymore. I was like, just go to Patmos. You can't come back here. They probably like took his passport or whatever at that time. I was like, you just can't come back here. So he's not necessarily living in change. He's not necessarily, but he has had to leave his community. He's had to leave, you know, his local church that he was almost certainly a pastor of. We have some evidence he might have been uh, the pastor of the church at, at Ephesus. So this is real loss for him, but it's a little bit different than the situation. Where do I land on this? I don't know. I'm not some historian. Um, it's John. That's what we know. That's what we're told. Um, it'd be kind of cool if it was John the gospel writer because he would have written this about 10 years after he wrote the gospel, and there are some overlaps, so we'll say it's John the gospel writer. Why not? Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Notice that he's writing down, that John is writing down what he sees that these are literal visions that he is given while he's in exile on this island, probably isolated, probably somewhat alone, and God shows up and literally gives him things to write down. He sees this. That's part of apocalyptic. Are, are these are literal visions, however they're communicated, whether in his sleep or whether as he's awake or something, but he's seeing these things. That becomes important later on. And then this, an interesting little blessing at the beginning of the book. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And now here's another one of those phrases. For the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So first we said the genre of this is apocalyptic. I would call prophecy, now it's called a prophecy. So we have two things at least genre-wise that it is. But I'd call prophecy the purpose of this. The purpose of prophecy uh, what prophecy is, is uh, the words of God spoken to the people of God by a representative of God. That's what prophecy is. I think a lot of us think of prophecy primarily as sort of foretelling the future, like a, like a fortune-telling thing. But what, what most biblical scholars would tell you is that rather than sort of <clears throat> like a fortune-telling future uh, prediction kind of genre, really what prophecy is is a kind of forth-telling. It's often a warning about what will happen if the people do not respond in certain ways now. So prophecy is, <clears throat> in many ways, biblically, really close to, to what I'm doing right now, really close to our modern concept of sermons, with a little bit of added, like, God has spoken into it, God has provided a, a specific warning to a specific people. But really what prophecy is meant to do is it's to wake God's people up and get you to act lest something happen in the future. Does that make sense? It's right here 
in that he says, blessed are those who read the words aloud of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. That word keep there is the, is the word, um, not, not keep like this is mine, like I hide it away. Keep in the sense of obey it, respond to it, take it seriously, live into the realities that it's talking about. That's what it means to keep it. And it says, for the time is near. Again, not because everything that's going to happen is happening in the future. The time is near. Is this, again, it's this very specific biblical language that, that would not have been missed on them. But because we tend to have a more literal approach to the Bible, we just don't hear the, these phrases the same way. It's really a way of saying, like, it's all happening. It's happening now. This is Jesus saying, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Same word. Is what he's saying is, is it, it's starting. It's all going on. All of this, yes, there's a culmination. Yes, there's a future aspect of this, which is why it's phrased the way that it is. But this is ultimately reality in the life that you're living right now. So respond to it. Take it seriously. React to it. Don't just sit by as though this is all stuff that will happen one day when whatever World War III finally breaks out in the world or something. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this is, in addition to an apocalypse, this very specific genre, in addition to a prophecy, the purpose for it, I was trying to think of like how to separate these. I would say the form that this comes in is it's a letter, very clearly a letter. This is not, um, this is another thing that we can sort of funkily think about Revelation is that it's like this secret ancient code that, uh, that someone discovered, and now if we just had the right decoder ring, we could figure out what all of it means and anticipate the end of the world or something. It's like, well, this is a letter. Like someone wrote this and was like, here, give this to these people. They'll get it. They'll understand. They'll respond to it as though it's a prophecy. In case we miss that, the, the whole thing itself, the whole apocalypse is front-loaded with not only this whole thing as a letter to all of these churches, but it's front-loaded with seven very specific letters to seven very specific churches, namely these seven churches that are in Asia. This was written primarily for them. And we do ourselves a disservice if we think that the primary audience of Revelation is whoever the generation that is living when Jesus returns again will be. And that's it. Revelation was primarily actually written for a group of people, frankly, long since dead, like 2,000 years ago. And it's these seven churches and these seven letters that we'll get to know over the course of this series. It's why the series itself is called Letters to the Churches. Because in these specific letters, what John is doing is, uh, and, and you'll see this, and we'll talk more about this in, in the next couple weeks, but what he's largely doing is he's saying, in light of the realities that I'm about to unveil and unmask to you, your faithfulness matters so much more than you know. And your unfaithfulness that in almost all these churches looks like compromise in certain specific ways 
is so much more consequential than you know. And he's saying, I'm going to name those things at the front end so that as I go through the images that God gave me, these visions that God gave me, pounding in your ears will be, yeah, this is why I'm calling you to a certain type of specific repentance. This is why I'm calling you out of your compromise. This is why I'm calling you back to faithfulness and courage and all of these things. Because your lives are caught up, because the time is near. These things are happening now, if only you could see them. This is the, so Asia, right? We think of Asia and we think of, of East Asia, the continent of Asia. What Asia actually is, I made you a map. Because at the intro to the last series, I made a map, and I had like more feedback on people just loving the map that I think we're just going to have more maps, you know, Dora style. Um, on the map, on the map. Okay, so this is a um, likely inaccurate <laughs> uh, modern, no, that is not the ancient years. Well done. Um, this is modern day, sort of. Uh, this is the best one that I could find, the biggest without too many cities. But what you're looking at is Europe over here, and then the Middle East, or at least the start of the Middle East, North Africa here. Asia in the usage that it's being used here, is actually this western part of modern-day Turkey. Okay? Western part of modern-day Turkey on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. This is the Middle East, right? This is Israel and what we think of. And then you have, like, Greece. This is where Philippi was, uh, the church that, that Paul was writing to. Go to the next slide. So this is that square but this is actually ancient, the ancient Near East. So I know that it's hard to see these little stars, but all of those stars, you can probably see that they're stars, are the seven churches that are now aimed in Revelation that we'll be working through these letters to. Cool? History lesson. Over. The number seven is really important in Revelation. It's really important in the Bible. Because these churches, this letter isn't just written to these churches, though. I'm about to sound like I'm contradicting what I'm saying. What I said was, they were originally written to these churches. But even in choosing to specifically name seven churches, John is already beginning to swim in the waters of the apocalyptic genre. Because numbers do mean a lot. We've done funky things with the numbers in Revelation. The numbers are actually fairly clear-cut. Because... If there is a decoder ring to the book of Revelation, it is not like a Dan Brown novel. It is not uh, some website on the dark web that tells you what Revelation is actually about. The decoder ring of the book of Revelation is... It's the Bible itself. And specifically, the other apocalyptic genre sections of the Bible itself. But it's the Bible. Specifically, it's the Old Testament. For instance, uh, I was looking at one of the better-known commentaries on this, uh, on, on this letter, one of the really famous ones. And in this section alone, this commentator was able to identify something like 38 specific references to the Old Testament just in these eight verses. So imagine what there are in the entire book. I'll point out a couple of those so that you get a feel for it. So seven, 
jumps off the page. What does seven mean? I don't know. Think of your, even if you haven't been around the Bible a lot, but you've been here for a little while, I don't know, what's the first thing in the Bible that has seven involved in it? Yeah, the days of creation, right? Seven days of creation. Seven is a number of divine completeness. It's a way of saying that, that, that this kind of covers everything. It's a, it's a comprehensive number. It's a number of God bringing to completion something. Why choose seven churches? Most commentators would agree. Here's your first little ding of like decoding revelation is more is going on here than him just writing to these seven churches. Almost certainly in writing to seven churches, he is signaling this though is relevant for the entire church, capital C, of God for all times and in all places. So these seven stand in for the church global and the church throughout the ages. Therefore, there is a very real sense in which this is sent to us. But remember, it's originally a letter to a specific group of people. The greeting sounds like the greeting of New Testament letters, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, now we're going to introduce the spirit of God, who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Where to start here? I'll start where John seems to be starting. He is unveiling the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if we're going to unmask reality, if we're going to take our mundane existence and have a sense of the actual spiritual urgency that stands behind our everyday lives, the first thing that needs to be unmasked is the utter supremacy, beauty, goodness, grace, and power of Jesus himself. That's what he's starting with here. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. The one through whom God created all things, as the letter to the Colossians says. The one who right now is existing as the rightful ruler over the cosmos itself. And the one to whom we will all one day give an account as we stand before him in judgment. If you want to unmask ultimate reality, most likely the very first thing that you are doing is looking into the eyes of Jesus himself. He stands behind it all, is what John is telling us. He specifically names Jesus Christ as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. What he's getting at here is, is the many times where Jesus says things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's getting at concepts like, if this is the gospel writer of John, think of where the gospel of John, if you know it, begins. It begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and the Word was God. The word was with God. The Word was God. It was in the beginning, and through that Word, all things were made. What this is saying is that the word of God, right? When, when, when God creates the world, he uses speech. He uses words to do it. Let there be light and there's light. In other words, the word of God perfectly accomplishes the will of God in this world. It's how God acts in the world. So to call Jesus the word of God is to say he perfectly does what God wants to do. 
Jesus is sent into the world like let there be light is sent into the world and there is light. Jesus is sent into the world with the mandate to perfectly reveal who God is and with the mandate to redeem the world that has gone utterly sour because of sin. Jesus perfectly accomplishes that. He is the word of God. Or as John has it here, he is the faithful witness. I love that language for Jesus. The faithful, the fully faithful witness. Do you know that what it means to be, right? A lot of conversation this past week about the image of God and the significance of that. One of the things it means to be made in the image of God is that our task is to perfectly reveal to the world who God is. The world is as messed up as it is because humanity writ large, all of us are complicit in this, has set aside that task. And we image something very different to the world through our sinful rebellion. Jesus takes back up that crown as uniquely the son of God, as the one who takes up that mandate given to Adam and Eve, and he perfectly fulfills it. He's the faithful witness to who God is. He is the firstborn of the dead. Not just the firstborn. He is the firstborn of the dead. To be the firstborn of something suggests what? There's more to come, right? This is language that the Apostle Paul picks up on, where he says that, or no, excuse me, the letter to the Hebrews picks up on where it says that Jesus came that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory with him. He came to be the firstborn of a big old family. Big old family of what? Firstborn of the dead. That because of what Jesus has done, there's going to be brothers and sisters. His resurrection will one day not be as unique as it currently stands. Because that resurrection will be applied to all of the people of God. And the family of God will be a resurrected family of God, the firstborn of the dead. I wanted to show you this because it's very important to understand. This is my highly sophisticated diagram. Okay, <laughs> work with me here. It's really, and, and if you've been around for a while, you've heard me say this before, but I just can't overstate how important it is to understand the Bible's understanding of time. In order to properly interpret so much of it, we have to understand what what the Bible believes about reality, what the Bible believes about history specifically. Here's, here's the unified witness of the New Testament. If you want the $5 theological term for it, it's right up here, write it down, impress your friends this week. And I want to be friends with your friends if they're impressed by that. But inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology is, um, is the doctrine of, of last things of what's going to happen at the end. It's actually, eschatology is often what, what people study Revelation as, is it's all about what's happening at the end. What the New Testament says, though, is that eschatology has been inaugurated. It started, right? Like, like when a present, president is inaugurated, it means that, that their particular administration, it's begun, it started. It hasn't started in earnest. It hasn't been, you know, the policies aren't through. Um, we haven't gotten a feel for, for exactly what their administration will be like. But it's starting, right? The biblical understanding of time is that everything that's coming has already started. 
The redemption of the world. It's coming. It's already started. The renewal of all creation. It's coming. And it's already started. Your salvation. It's coming. And it's already started. Your resurrection into a new body. It's coming. It's already started. This is the constant teaching of the New Testament. That specifically, and I put, I don't know if you can tell what that is. That is an empty tomb. Specifically at the resurrection of Jesus, there is this sudden and frankly, biblically, unexpected overlapping of the ages. And the two ways that these ages are described biblically is one is this present evil age. This age characterized by sin and rebellion, the fall of humanity, the destruction as a result of creation, warring and lack of reconciliation between people groups. All of that stuff is this present evil age is what the scriptures call it. Then there's an age to come where peoples are reconciled, where God is worshiped without rival where creation itself is completely restored to the four corners of the earth. What the biblical prophets expected is when God did what God was going to do in history and come and make all things right and show his power and, and overturn the effects of sin, that the age to come would explode into reality. And this present evil age would be over. The surprising reality that the New Testament is at pains to show us is that instead there is this overlap of those two realities in which we now live. And if you wonder why did God do it this way, the biblical answer, I don't know if it's, it's fascinating, I don't know if it's fully satisfying, the biblical answer to why did God choose to wait why did he wait on bringing in the full reality of his kingdom and allow this to allow there to be this age in which these things overlap? The biblical answer is you. You. It says God has chosen this so that many might come to repentance. And God's patience is in order that many would turn in light of his kindness toward him. Right? Now that doesn't solve all the philosophical theological questions but it is the one that the New Testament most often gives. God wanted a bigger family, right? It doesn't sound like the most sophisticated theological reality, but that's what the New Testament says. That's why there's this overlap. But living in this overlap means that we now live with all of the realities of a broken world around us, and yet also with the hope of a kingdom that has already started here and now, the primary evidence of which is two things. The resurrection bodily of Jesus, which is a historical fact, which if that is true, it literally changes everything. That is the first thing that tells us that there is hope in this world, that there is a different kind of kingdom breaking into it. The second thing that gives us hope, believe it or not, is the same as the answer to my last question. It's you. It's the church. It's the people of God who are living into these kingdom realities in the midst of a broken world that we are a witness to the world that there's something else going on right in their midst, right under their noses, right under our noses, and all the brokenness and sin and confusion and political striving, all the nonsense of this world. There are people like me and like most of you who stand up and say, I believe that there's a God active in the world. 
And I believe that he's active in my story. And I believe that I'm not who I was and that there's actually something at work changing me bit by bit, bringing about new realities in me that actually witness to things that I wouldn't be able to do from within my own inner strength. There's something working upon me that feels foreign to the world as I know it, that's moving in an opposite direction to those things. And I'm not alone. I've got brothers and sisters, really imperfect, really messy, really Jersey, who I actually show up every Sunday with, and we say, yeah, we believe these things and we're living them out. That's the witness that this is true. Therefore, the consistent teaching of the New Testament is this rhythm between the already and the not yet. That certain things are already true, that the Spirit of God really live, is living inside of imperfect people like us. But the full reality of what that means, the full application of what that means is not yet here. And anyone who has walked with Jesus for any amount of time should be able to say amen to that. I'm not who I am going to be. I am not who I was. I am a witness to that overlapping reality. That's what it means that Jesus is the firstborn of dead. The ruler of kings on earth. Right now we're getting into the apocalyptic. That any authority on this earth is derivative at best, certainly secondary to Jesus' ultimate authority as the one who stands over all things. And then he just takes a break to remind us who Jesus is, to him who loves us. Now all of a sudden he just starts worshiping, right? To him, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Mini parenthetical worship session over. He just takes a minute to worship Jesus. He says, this same Jesus, who is ultimate reality, this is the one who comes so close in the cross to love you, to love you specifically, and to love you at the cost of his life, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then he says, and has actually made us a kingdom of priests. This is, this is one of those massive Old Testament references. This is Exodus 19, 6, where God says, my whole purpose in calling a specific people Israel to myself is to somehow make them a kingdom, rulers, and priests to me, a, a, a kingdom of priests, priests who rule, kingly priests, priestly kings and queens. And the story of the Old Testament is largely that intention gone horribly wrong because of human sinfulness and rebellion. And what John is saying here is he's saying, this is another one of those overlaps. God has actually made us a kingdom. We're different in this world. And he's made us priests. You know what that means? He's saying, Real people, real messed up people, mundane people, people you're sitting next to right now actually have access to God that was barred to the entire people of God except one person once a year for a very short amount of time. You're sitting among people who know pleasures and, and richness of the presence of God that chief priests in the Old Testament did not know. He's saying because we live in an overlap. This is ultimate reality. This is what you're living in. This is what your life means. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is getting at more Old Testament prophecy, specifically Daniel 7, Zechariah 12. 
that speaks of this one who will come with all of the authority of the universe, coming on clouds. It's, it's like the dopest way uh, to, to signify someone with all authority, someone just chilling, riding down on the clouds, right? Not a literal image, an image that's meant to evoke something in us, to say, who's someone who surfboards on the clouds, right? He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every eye will see him. This is from Zechariah 12 that speaks of the very people who put God to death will somehow find life in God. It's one of the weirdest prophecies of the Old Testament. People would wrestle with this. How can those responsible for the death of God, for the ending of God's, of God's intervention in human history, somehow be the ones who then can behold him, either for their judgment, certainly, but some that they might live? All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What this is saying is if we could see Jesus in all of his glory and splendor, we would all weep. Since this one has come and he came in lowly form. Yes, he came veiled. He came veiled, right? We're having an unveil. He came veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Right? We sing that around Christmas. He came veiled. And all of the glory and goodness and grace and power of this one, we responded to as humanity with what? Rejection and torture and ultimately crucifixion. What this is saying is one day the world, humanity at large, will behold it. One day he will be unveiled, unmasked to all humanity. This is ultimate reality. This is what everything is moving towards. I am the Alpha and the Omega, first letter, last letter of the Greek alphabet, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I just want to read a couple things. Um, that specifically, Eugene Peterson, I mentioned him before, uh, one of my favorite writers, fellow pastor, says about Revelation. He says the job of the apocalyptic, of Revelation specifically, is to meet us in the unlovely middle of our lives and to connect it to the splendor of God's beginning and intention for all things and the glorious ending to which we are headed. To meet us in the unlovely middle. He says it's meant to prod our imagination to experience afresh what is in danger of being only acknowledged by the people of God intellectually. To prod the imagination to experience afresh. Here's what makes Revelation both so hard and so useful. What makes it so hard is our lives, most of our lives just seem so normal. Or most of our lives just seem so tragic, right? It's normally one or the other. Like even in our best moments, we're like, yeah, kind of normal, right? That's what makes engaging this hard. You're like, yeah, okay. What makes it so useful is if we will just dwell in it for a while, it will meet us in the unlovely middle of our Monday normal tragic lives and awaken us to some realities that provide an urgency to life that provide meaning to life, that show us that our everyday suffering, loss, grief, mourning, pain, frustration, temptation, 
It deeply, profoundly matters to God. It is part of the story of God that has been unfolding from the creation of the world that is now being played out on this cosmic scale. And yet our eyes are veiled to it. And how gracious of God to say, I don't want your eyes to be veiled by the normality or the tragedy of your life to the glory that stands just beyond your reach if you could see it. Because we live in an overlap. And yet that overlap, right? Part of what Revelation is trying to do, if you could put that up just one more time. Part of what it's trying to do is it's trying to say, look, in this, right? This is where we're living in the middle here. If you could see how fierce the fight is for your faithfulness between the powers of darkness and the goodness of God, not an equal fight. That's one thing that we'll learn in Revelation. Ain't no yin and yang here. Ain't no good and evil. Ain't no how's it all going to But there is battle. There are warring forces. If you could see that battle over just your everyday choices, you would realize your life matters so much more to both sides than you realize. You are not unseen in this world. And then the other thing that it wants us to do is it wants to say, if you knew it was coming, because there is a lot of stuff in here that isn't here yet, that is out there. And it's meant to say, if you knew what was coming, you'd take another step forward. If you knew what was coming, you'd keep showing up. If you knew what was coming, you'd send that text to get a little prayer and support from that friend. If you knew what was coming, you would live into some of the tensions because it's really hard to be a Christian sometimes. It's really confusing sometimes. One of the things that I think that we have lost as the church of God and I'll just speak for the context, context that I know best, right, in the West. We've lost our imagination for the things of God. And we think, we think that mundane blah, of our lives, the unlovely middle, is the full story. And it's barely the story at all. That's what God wants to unveil. Here's what I love, though. When, when it's unveiled, the first thing that we see here what Jalen will preach his face off next week about is we see the eyes of Jesus. It's Jesus, 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 and Jesus again. The one who loves you. The one who died to bring you in. To bring you into the family. And so all kidding aside, right? Like, Revelation is scary, but the one in control of it all, he's love incarnate. And in all of this craziness, he is so utterly for you that he wants to unveil it and say, I just want you to come home. I just want you to get there. I just want you to enjoy what I've prepared for you. But in this overlap, I know it's really hard. So let me show you how significant all of your choices are. Let me show you how significant your repentance is, your perseverance is. Let's pray.